Um, so most of you know I've, I've been a high school teacher for 20 years now, and, and uh, at Christian schools most of those time, most of that time. And so it's quite common for one of my wisecracking students to refer me to Ecclesiastes 12.12, which says, of, of, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And so, of course, that's a, a, a fun passage for a student to point out to his teacher. And, uh, and true, no doubt, and I bet all of you have known people who studied so much that their lives were out of balance because that was, uh, you know, they neglected other areas of their lives. And yet, um, in my experience, that's not the that's not the main problem that most of us have. Uh, it's not that we're studying so much we can't get the rest of it done. Um, I think if you're like most of us, a little more study would be somewhat helpful. So we're on the fourth week. I'm kind of excited because we we started this series a month ago. Uh, based on the book Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. It's, it's subtitled The Path to Spiritual Growth. And it's got like three sub-series, and we're finishing the first of those. This is week four. The, we've got the inward disciplines, the outward disciplines, and the corporate disciplines. And the inward disciplines we've already studied are meditation, prayer, and fasting. And I don't want to show a hand, so just a rhetorical question so you can examine your heart. Feel free to nod if you'd like. Have you practiced these first three? Because the goal here isn't just to to hear me talk about what's in this book and then go to Cracker Barrel when it's over. Uh, the goal is to do something uh, with the, to practice the disciplines that he encourages. And so my, my goal or my, my goal for myself, my encouragement to you is um, let's pick up something new along the way. We're going to be spending three months and, and my ultimate purpose, I think I explained this early, is you know, we've gone through a bit of a growth spurt at church over the last quarter and I think that's a, a, a healthy thing, a good sign. And yet, I, I, I want to make sure that our roots go deep, that we're not so concerned with spreading out that we become shallow. And this is an appropriate time, I think, to, you know, for this little band of believers to, to make sure that we are practicing the things that will make us strong and healthy disciples. I'm not talking about salvation. Uh, that's not what these are about. I'm talking about healthy life and growth as a disciple. And so meditation is one of those. Prayer is one of those. I, I bet you saw that one coming. You, you show up at church, and, and, and the, the preacher's going to say, we ought to pray. Um, yet, let's try it a different way. Uh, how about make somebody or some circumstance your prayer project over the next 30 days? Uh, or that, that would be one way to make it different. Or if you've never done this before, how about start a prayer journal with, with two columns, with prayers on one column and answers on the other column? Uh, that's a faith-building exercise that would, I think, rejuvenate and revitalize your prayer life so that you would feel like you were doing something other than just you know, giving God your list of, of things to do uh, or, or circumstances you want him to fix. Uh, how about fasting? Last week I encouraged small steps towards this, uh, and uh, <laughs> I fell on my face with my own attempt to keep going this week. I fasted last week to prepare for the message on fasting because I... I didn't want to be a Pharisee, but I really intend to keep going with that, you know, the, a 24-hour fast once a week for, until we finish the series, and I, I totally blew it this week. But uh, that's okay. I, you know, I'm a, I, I scheduled the day I wanted to fast. The same day I scheduled this party at my history class, and those kids came in with their homemade cookies, and it was all over for me. And so, uh, so yeah, I, I got, God still loves me and knows I love him, but... Uh, I need to be more and more proactive with my planning. And, of course, 
many of you noticed the irony that last week, evidently, at Walmart, there was this big sale on donuts. And so I did this message on fasting, and then we had, like, not only a lot of donuts like we do this week, but a, a more decadent style of donut. Did any of you notice the, the donut sandwich that had chocolate in the middle last week? It was like, we're going to talk about fasting, and then we're going to eat like Romans, it seems. But... Uh, <laughs> Um, but maybe sometime during the week you got a chance to practice it, and, uh, and I'm going to try again sometime this week. So week four is all about study, and, and I discovered in the first service that the study I intended to start at the end of the week, or at the end of the message, I, I wasn't able to get to, and that's fine. So what I want to do, I'm gonna, we're going to take two weeks with this one. I'm going to sort of lay the foundation and see if I can whet your appetite and make you curious enough to want to study on your own. I'm going to give you an assignment, a Bible book to study over the next six, seven days, and then next Sunday we're going to talk about that. And so it'll be more, next Sunday will be more fun if you do the, the in-between. Uh, I think it'll be instructive if you don't, but you know, you'll just be, you'll feel more like a player rather than like a spectator if you, if you do this week's assignment. So next month or, uh, or starting next Two weeks from now, we'll get to the outward disciplines, simplicity, solitude, submission, and service. And then in November, we'll get to the corporate disciplines, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. And with the uh, anniversary, uh, the church anniversary coming up and Christmas stuff, this will probably, this series will probably take us to the end of the year, and we'll start something new in January. So the purpose of these, the purpose of these disciplines, as Brandon read for us, is transformation, transform lives, total transformation. Uh, we all come to the table with our own habits. And many of those habits that we bring with us, some we inherited from our family, some we picked up along the way, uh, they're destructive habits. And what we want to do is we want to, to, to unburden ourselves of those unhealthy destructive habits and form new habits that are going to be healthy, new habits that are going to be life-giving. And that's what this is about. Romans 12.2 says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's an excellent promise, but how do we, how do we receive that? By renewing our minds, and how does that happen? You, your mind becomes renewed when you apply it to the things that will transform it. Uh, Paul said it this way in Philippians 4, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So in a room this size with, with this many people in it, I know, I know we have people who, who come to church on Sunday morning and, and want to do it right but still feel in bondage. Now, oftentimes we think about bondage, we think about addiction. It's really easy to recognize bo- uh, any form of addiction as bondage, but... but those people just have an easier time recognizing what they're enslaved to. Bondage is anything that won't let go of you. Anything, anything that you can't, that you find that you're unable to free yourself from. And uh, you know, a common one uh, that's um, more socially acceptable, I guess, or less scandalous in church circles would be fear, or worry, or or. I mean, people will openly admit to being worry warts, where the Bible says, "Don't do it." It's not. It's it's hard to. To claim that you're staying on the high road, if you're saying, "Well, Jesus said not to do this thing, but I just, I'm just going to do it. I just can't stop doing it. My mom did it. I'm doing it." Um, you know, if we substituted other sins, they, they wouldn't feel so nice if we were saying those things. And yet, you know, we kind of give ourselves a pass on on some of them. So, 
if you're stuck, one of the, one of the ways out is to study. Uh, you may come to church on Sunday and sing heartily. You might pray fervently. You might be doing your best to live a life that's obedient to Christ and yet still feel unchanged on the inside. Well, one of the, one of the ways out would be to study. John, in John 8, Jesus said this. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So if you're in bondage, Jesus said knowing the truth is going to help set you free. Good feelings are nice. I'm all for those. I like those good feelings. But knowledge of the truth is what lasts, and knowledge of the truth is what helps us escape some of the bondage of old patterns of the past. Now, here's a scary thought to me. Um, some of you are, have been, I think, victims of false teaching. I think we've all had stories of that. And as I read this next line from Jesus, this next quote that, that he said to the Pharisees, I'm chilled by it because my prayer is that this never be me, that this never be your experience here. But, you know, it, it, it scares me a little bit to think that the harshest things Jesus ever said on this earth, he said to the religious establishment of his day, to people like me who taught other people how to do it right, and yet they lost their focus and it wasn't really even that the things they taught were so wrong, but they were so out of focus that they missed the Messiah when he came. And here's what Jesus said about him. This is Matthew 23:15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. And so what's that about? That means I feel like I got to be careful to study. I, I feel a burden to be careful to study appropriately so that when I stand before you and teach, that I'm teaching you properly. And, and it just, it strikes me, you know, I want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I don't want to hear anything like this when I see Jesus. I, I don't want to hear, you know, why don't you, why don't you study enough so you could teach him the right way instead of just what you felt like teaching him? And so this, the, the, the chilling thing about this is this was written to teachers who were careless with their responsibilities. And so that's why I'm chilled by this. I want to be careful uh, I feel a responsibility before you, but one of the things I'm, I feel responsible to teach you is that it's not up to me to do all the study. I accept my responsibility. I, I know that's, that, that's what you're expecting from me, but one of the ways I can help you is not to train you just to get all your food from me, but to show you how to find it yourselves, and that's what we're going to be talking about this week. So we're going to look at the discipline of study. We're going to look at the pitfalls. We're going to learn how to practice it with joy, I hope, because it's exciting when you, when you get that aha moment. And we're going to experience the freedom of being students at the School of the Holy Spirit. In Deuteronomy 11:18, um, Moses told the people to put the laws on their doorposts and on their wrists so that they would be as frontlets before their eyes. They would be always in front of them. And the idea was to repeatedly direct their attention to God, uh, kind of the same purpose as a prayer wheel or, or rosary beads for those of you from a Catholic tradition. In the New Testament, it says to write the laws on your heart and that they'll lead us to Jesus, who's our example and our ongoing guide. And here's really one of the most important things I want to say today. The habits of thought will conform to what we study. Or I'll say it the same, the same thing in the backwards way. What we study will determine the habits of our thought. Study is not the same as meditation, the thing we studied three weeks ago. They can overlap a lot, but meditation is devotional and study is analytical. Study is more like the framework, and if we lay a proper foundation, then there's plenty of room for meditation within that foundation. Uh, Foster, 
uh, uses the word picture for two different books. I hate doing the finger quotes, but I don't know any other way to do it. Uh, his books, not just books, but he says there's this, this verbal one and this nonverbal one. And the verbal one, obviously, are words. And so they include books like books, but they also include words that you hear spoken, like, like sermons or maybe a radio message or just a conversation with somebody else. And then the nonverbal books he would describe that we study from would, would include nature, but also events and circumstances. And I think if you think back on your own lives, you can think about challenging circumstances you went through that God used to instruct you and make you into the, the person you are today. And quite often, uh, those are the, the, the more negative circumstances. You know, I think Gene and I would tell stories from our own lives where some of our formative events as disciples are things we never would have chosen for ourselves or for our families. And yet, having come through a refining fire, we were different people. And, and so we are always at study, not just, or we have the opportunity to be, not just with words and books, but also with the experiences of our lives. And yet I think it's quite possible to go through, through, through trying circumstances and not grow from them. You know, we gotta, we gotta go through with our eyes open. We gotta embrace what God's got for us in the moment. So there are four steps. The four steps are repetition, concentration, comprehension, and reflection. This is where I got bogged down in the first service. I spent too much time talking about repetition, so I'll go faster here. Repetition regularly channels your mind in a specific direction. This can work even if you don't fully understand or agree with the things you're saying. This is why therapists sometimes have people do affirmations where they'll look in the mirror and say something that seems right. Um, and the, and if you, I always think about the uh, Saturday Night Live skit with Stuart Smalley where he's looking at the mirror saying, I'm, I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. And it seems so lame. And yet, why would people do that? They would do it because the repetition, in spite of ourselves, even if we know better, even if we don't agree, the repetition does change your mind. I can give you a, a, an example from the Bible. Um, how many of the Psalms... I don't have a number answer for you, but, but the answer is many. How many of the Psalms are about David rehearsing for Israel the goodness of God? Look at what God did. A whole bunch, yeah. A, a, a gazillion. Um, the, uh, they're, all, they're all about, look what God did. Look how he got us out of Egypt. Look how he fed us through the desert. Look how God did this. And they would sing these songs over and over again, and many of them are about the same topic. There, it's about the goodness of God they're rehearsing. Or another example in a negative way. Um, and, and this is how our minds can be transformed by repetition, even if it doesn't match up with what we agree. Um, I, I know I'm going to describe an experiment that I, I don't know the name of the university or all the details of the experiment, but the experiment was based on people's emotional response to different visual stimuli. And the way they set up the experiment was this. They showed people a film clip, uh, two different film clips, and before they, they plugged them up, wired them up so they could measure their heart rate and, and how they responded to what they saw. And the two film clips were of, one was a man shooting a man, and the other one was a man kicking a dog. And, and which one do you suppose produced the more, the stronger response? The stronger response came when people saw the dog getting kicked. Um, and yet, you know, I'm not for kicking dogs, but, but we would not rank that as the higher tragedy. Uh, why is it that we can watch a man shooting a man 
and, and react with less emotion, it's because we're so used to that. It's because every, every night on TV or every time we go to movies, sometimes, sometimes you can see lots of men shooting lots of men. Uh, and it's just, it's just commonplace. And so it's not that, that, that we're immune to that. It's that we're kind of numbed to it. And we know intellectually it's worse to shoot a man than kick a dog. They're, they're both bad. But, but emotionally, we've been transformed by our culture into thinking, eh, I've seen a lot of that. And the other one, oh, why do you kick a dog? And so that, that's an example in a negative way. Or uh, w one last uh, example of this uh, on the idea of repetition. Gina taught me something she learned in psychology class several years ago. Where our long-term, it's, it's about the difference between our long-term memory and our short-term memory. And she used to kind of, before she went to this class, she used to give me a hard time when she'd hear me spout some lame, trivial statistic about baseball or history or something like that and she'd say you know if you didn't have that stupid stuff in there in that you would you would have room for more bible verses or something that really matters like who cares about how many home runs Babe Ruth hit or, or whatever but she learned that that's actually an inaccurate explanation of how the long-term memory works because the long-term memory is like a warehouse of almost infinite capacity you'll never ever fill it up uh, and once it's there, you'll never get rid of it. It'll always stay. I, I, I gave a silly example of the first service. Saw st a story on TV once about uh, an elf who didn't like to make toys. His name was Herbie. Herbie didn't like to make toys. Does anybody remember what he wanted to be instead? Dennis. Okay, now, now I think that that's a silly illustration. I think proves my point. Um, did any of you watch that show this week? Um, are you you're studying that show in preparation for a test, or did you need to know that for some reason? No, somehow watching that silly TV show with your kids when they were little over and over again year after year, it got into your long-term memory, and it's not going anywhere. And, and you can picture, probably many of you could start quoting every part of the Rudolph show or, or, or so many other shows like that. And, and my point is, it got from your short-term memory into your long-term memory. And now, it's, now that it's there, it's never going anywhere. The short-term memory is sadder, though. It's like an elevator with two doors, um, like a utility elevator at a hotel. You ever get an elevator at a hotel, and then the back door opens, and someone comes in with a cart? And the problem is, as you go through your day, your sh stuff goes in the front door of your elevator in your short-term memory, and everything else that comes pushes that to the back. So by the time you have lunch, you've already forgotten what you did early in the morning. and so. If I wanted to be a good student of any subject, I would, the key would be how do I get stuff from my elevator into my warehouse? Because once you get in your warehouse, you've got it. And the answer is, the psychologists call it rehearsal. Um, Foster calls it repetition. The answer is you go through it enough, then it, it, it moves, you, you repeat it, it goes from your short-term memory into your long-term memory. And that explains why, why I can spout you know, silly baseball stats but can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday because you know, my short-term memory doesn't work as well as my long-term memory. Um, and so that's the idea. I don't have to spend as long on the rest of these. What about concentration? The human mind has incredible ability to concentrate, and yet a lot of what our cultural habits nowadays kind of uh, dilute that ability. Multitasking is, is something that I'm very tempted by my, in my own life, but because of the, the the variety and number of stimuli, I think we just find a hard time, uh, we find it much harder to focus, or at least I do. Um, when, I, when I need to and I, I'm able to, 
but my routine life just doing what comes naturally is a life that has two or three things happening at the same time and that that makes it harder to concentrate comprehension jesus promised that you will know the truth and many of you know the 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 joy from that aha moment when it's like okay now i get this and those moments bring us to new levels of growth and freedom it's the basis for a true perception of reality because what I want to do is align my thinking with God's thinking. I don't want to, I don't want to believe what I believe because I prefer it or believe what I believe because it feels better. I want to believe what's true. And I want to align my thinking with God so I can see the world through his eyes and not through a, you know, a particular political point of view or denominational point of view. I want to see the world through God's eyes so I can understand what's really true. And then reflection, that's the why does this matter? That's the ruminating on it, the chewing on it, the... the over and over again, what's this mean and what's this mean to me? Study requires humility. The arrogant and prideful don't see any need for to, to be taught, and, and therefore they're unteachable. So the idea that I, there, I've got much to learn, Holy Spirit teach me, that's, that's a, that step of humility is a major step in learning to study. So what are the rules? Um, I've got a couple different categories of rules. There are intrinsic rules in studying any book, a book of the Bible, or any other book. And then there are extrinsic rules. The intrinsic rules are we need understanding, we need interpreting, we need evaluating. Uh, do you need to read three different times to get those three steps? Maybe at first, but eventually I think you'll be able to do them kind of simultaneously. Understanding, what's the author saying? Interpreting, what's the author mean? Evaluating, is the author right or wrong? Beware of skipping to the evaluation step without the understanding and interpreting step. Um, I'll give you an example of this. Um, a few years ago, maybe you remember, there was this big hoopla in, in fundamentalist churches and, and, and Bible-believing churches about the Da Vinci Code, the novel. It's like, oh, this is, you know, look out. This will wreck your church. Your kids will all quit believing in Jesus because they're going to uh, follow the characters in this novel. And, and I, I respect the decision, especially, you know, I don't want to jump into your families, and I respect the decision of parents to be careful with their children. And yet, I think in the church circles, or in church circles, people like me can lose credibility when we jump to judgment when we don't know what we're talking about. And so, I was curious about this book in particular because I knew my students were going to be asking me questions about it. So I determined to read it. I read it once, and then a, a, a Bible study, or a book, book club study group of us met here on Wednesday nights and we sat over there and we discussed it and we would read a chapter and we'd, we'd ask ourselves the question, what about the things these history guys or, or these uh, characters in the, uh, the book are saying about history, do they match up? And we'd go do some research outside and, uh, and come back and discuss it the, the next week. Well, actually, you know, this episode they described was accurate and this one they went way off. And, and here's our ultimate review or my ultimate review, and I think it carries more weight because I took the time to read the book two times and, and, uh, and didn't just rush to judgment. Dan Brown is an excellent novelist. He spins a good mystery and a, a real page turner. I was excited to know, eager to find out what's gonna happen next. As a historian, not so hot, uh, careless with his research. He, uh, uh, he didn't challenge what the Bible says because we'd have known better. We know the Bible well enough to know if he'd have flipped that on his head, but he did challenge a lot of uh, what I think the texts teach about church history, and we're much more ignorant of church, early church history, so he was able to get away with that. And, uh, and yet not with our group, because we checked it out. As a theologian, don't even bother. I mean, his, uh, I, don't, I don't know what, where his theology stands, but his, his heroes, his characters were, uh, um, 
you know, very much of the opinion that the Catholic Church had been perpetuating this fraud on the people for centuries. And so people like a conspiracy theory novel. But here's what I liked about it. It opened the door to conversations that I couldn't have initiated. Uh, more than once, I had a, a, a unbelieving friends of mine who are non-believers ask me questions about the things they read in this book. Now, what if I tried to start a conversation with them about the same topic? I, don't, I think I might have gotten a wall. And so I was grateful for the opportunity to have conversations I couldn't have made happen on my own. And I was better prepared for them by studying that book. Now, I always want to come back to the scriptures. But my point is, we want to understand and interpret before we try to evaluate. And then, what are the uh, extrinsic rules? Experience, your own life. Uh, any book will be more powerful for you if it intersects with your own experience. Um, there are a couple of psalms that I think definitely intersect with my experience, and I, I use them if I want to give a short version of my testimony. Sometimes I'll just go to Psalm 116 and say, you know, read that one. I don't know how David knew about me 3,000 years ago, but he wrote all about me in Psalm 116. Um, other books help, and you might think, well, that's reviews and commentaries, but sometimes a book can lay a foundation for a later book. A, a Bible example of this is if you're going to read Romans or Hebrews, it's much easier if, you, if you've read the Old Testament. It makes the things that the, writer, the New Testament writers have to say make a lot more sense if you have an Old Testament foundation. And then live discussion. This interaction, um, and it's one of the, uh, is, is one way to just synthesize the material and make it more real to you. And it's one of the ways we strongly recommend some kind of involvement in church that doesn't include just showing up for the Sunday morning service. We're thrilled that you're here. But we think that relationships are formed and, and a, a depth of study is accomplished on Monday at youth group, on Tuesday at the intercession meeting, on Wednesday at, the, at that worship service, on Thursday at the women's Bible study. Those things um, offer an opportunity to go deeper than, than just showing up and being part of the congregation on Sunday morning. Now, obviously I'm for studying the Bible. You're at church, no surprise. And, and that's a good place to start. Uh, that's the one that's that's the, the study that we're most interested here. And you might think, oh boy, what a book. Yeah, I, it's too much for me to, to tackle, too big a challenge. But here's a comforting thought. The Bible's not a book. It's an anthology of 66 books. And, and one at a time is a, is a manageable way to study the books of the Bible. It's a collection of books. And that's one of the reasons we do book series here, where we go through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, so we can we can dig in and study in some depth. Psalm 119 says it this way, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And then in, in 2 Timothy, Paul says it this way, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Something interesting about this to me, what's the central purpose of studying the scriptures according to Paul? Not doctrinal purity, although I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think that would be good. But it's inner transformation. That's why that we're... But it's inner transformation. That's why we're... But it's why inner transformation. That's why But it's why inner transformation. That's why we're... But it's inner transformation. That's why we're... But it's transformation. That's why we're...
Information. The 